Welcome to our podcast, where I, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and Alicia Swamy are exposing mold. Today, we are here with Michael Rubino. All American Restoration is operated by the Authority on Mold Remediation, Michael Rubino, an educator, mold expert, and the author of The Mold Medic. Together with the Director of Operations, Jeffrey Nowitzki, All American Restoration has curated a company that is unparalleled in the mold remediation scene. All American Restoration is recognized as the most innovative mold remediation company in the world. Their process is three times as thorough compared to the national standard of mold remediation and has a guaranteed success rate in improving conditions of a home beyond the standards of a normal ecology. Their systems have a 100% guarantee to remove mold, mycotoxins, endotoxins, and bacteria, the hidden culprits behind poor air quality and many health issues. By removing the contaminants from the environment and improving the space so that these issues can no longer occur, they specialize in working with people who are immunocompromised or have acute and sustained reactions to mold exposure. All-American Restoration has experience working with patients that have been diagnosed with chronic inflammatory response syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivities, autoimmune disorders, Lyme disease, Lyme disease and co-infections, individuals with mast cell activation syndrome, and immunocompromised persons. All-American Restoration finds that doing their own mold testing is a huge conflict of interest and they accept any third-party testing company of their clients choosing for pre- and post-test validation. Michael, welcome. I hear that you are a mold remediator. Yes, and thank you for having me. Yes, can you tell us a little bit about your mold remediation business? Yeah, so I'm a second generation restoration contractor. Um, kind of grew up around construction my entire life. What's interesting about me is um, I pretty much got into the business right after Hurricane Sandy, I would say more professionally, um, as opposed to just being around it, you know, working on the weekends with my dad and stuff. And um, when I started seeing people getting sick, uh, that's when I really started to dive into the science behind it because. I think with remediation and a lot of the stuff that gets missed is essentially the way remediation is looked at is really more of like a, an aspect of construction. Um, and, and a lot of the principles around remediation are outdated. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book, The Mold Medic, was to kind of discuss that and, and really bring forth the conversation of the work that I'm doing, especially with the people who are immunocompromised and seeing how they're you know, going from not being able to live in their home into living in their home and kind of the fundamentals that brought me there is really what uh, my passion is and kind of creating that awareness around that. I heard you say that some of the current mold remediation techniques are outdated. Would you speak on that just a little bit more so I can understand what, what you're saying? Yes. So when I look at mold remediation, it should really encompass three, three fundamental principles, if you will. You have the source of mold that's growing and actively growing, and and that's the colonization, right? And you have the opportunity that allowed the mold spores to grow into colonies in the first place. And then you have the contamination, as we call it, that has been created by the sources of mold. So in looking at that and making sure that a remediation project really encompasses all three of those aspects, I feel like it's not consistent throughout the industry. I think a lot of what, what I see as a professional is people coming in, just ripping out drywall, insulation, spraying chemicals, and thinking that that is a proper remediation job. So 
that's kind of what I say is outdated is I feel like there, there really needs to be more involved in that. I actually had a remediation that is kind of like you're explaining. It was a local company in, I'm not, I actually don't want to disclose the area because I don't want to, Sure, you know, indicate who it could be, but they were, you know, like they all are the most respected teams because you hear that about almost every remediation team. And of course I didn't realize how big of a mistake this was until it was too late, but they had no part of their action plan to act to stop the water that was coming into the house before they actually made any repairs. So it sounds like finding the water intrusion source is part of what your company does. Do you have an entire team that can work on like repairing structural issues and and stopping water intrusion like that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's got to be part and parcel of remediation. If not, it's not effective, right? Because if you're not stopping the opportunity that allowed the mold to grow in the first place, even if you're the best remediator in the world and you remove the mold properly, it's going to come back because the opportunity for it to grow is still present. So I think that's one of the big things with, with these kind of, I call them like smash and grab artists, you know, like they just want to smash things, you know, bag it up, throw it away and, and say that they've done a good job. And I think without that that missing component there, I mean, the mold's going to grow back. Are you really doing the client a service if that's the case, right? No, even if insurance is covering it, right? Odds are insurance isn't going to cover it a second time. So at some point, you're going to be costing this person money, not fixing the problem properly in the first place. Absolutely. And I just briefly familiarized myself with your company when I learned that you were joining our podcast and I saw that you have a guarantee for effectiveness for remediation. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, it depends on obviously every product's different. Um, so the situation really has to dictate what we're looking to accomplish, but um, there's circumstances where someone will bring, you know, the house is tested in the dust for mycotoxins. If that's the case and that's something that we're, bringing to the table to remove, we'll guarantee it so that the test has to show from present to not present in order for us to consider the job complete. Same thing with like the EPA 36 or the MSQPCR technology out there. If there are certain parameters we're looking to accomplish as a company, we're going to guarantee that we're going to get there or we don't consider the job complete. So these are the, the types of guarantees that we offer. And it's really job specific depending on, you know, what what the parameters are in, in terms of passing, right? Because I think if someone is, is really ill, they may have specific parameters that they're looking to accomplish, where someone else maybe is looking to, you know, just improve the overall air quality based upon an air sample. So I would say that every situation is different and the guarantee should really kind of encompass what you're looking to accomplish as a team. Okay, so we'll just we'll just stay on like the conversation of mycotoxins for an example because something that comes to mind is a conversation that our podcast had with Dr. David Strauss who is a researcher who did a lot of research on mycotoxins and at that time he had access to a very specific very special machine that's no longer in production or existence or whatever, wherever it is, nobody knows, no one has access to the technology. And it was the only machine in existence that could accurately give an idea of mycotoxin load because 
well, you can kind of see if they're in dust with some tests. You can never understand what's, what's fully present in the house. So just having that in the back of my mind makes me wonder, what test would you do that could offer that, that guarantee? Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the guarantee is specific based upon the testing, right? And I know that right now they can test for five different mycotoxins in, in obviously testing the dust load. So it's not conclusive. We can guarantee that the, our process will remove at least the five that they can test for because we're, we're limited by the ability to test for it. Looking at mycotoxins and how it acts inside the home as a you know chemical residue, if you will, and understanding the process to remove it by just an excessive amount of wiping it away. That's really what allows us to offer that guarantee. We know with the cleaning process, if we detail every nook and cranny, we're wiping it three times over three different directions with three different microfiber towels. That's what's been providing us success. And I really took that protocol from the chemical residue, you know, spill cleanup protocol based upon research that I was doing in 2013 when I was first asked as a contractor to remove mycotoxins. So this is me coming in, not even knowing what a mycotoxin was, and I was tasked with having to remove it. And so I just trial and error did, did the process until we got it to, to show as not present. Now, for lack of a better term, we're, we're just able to duplicate that process over and over again, and we're getting you know shown as not present each time, every time. So. Is there uh, a better way to do it? Um, is there a way to refine our process? I mean, I think absolutely. I think in the next 10 to 20 years, myself or others will figure out how to do this more cost-effective, more affordable, et cetera. But really, I'm just trying to sit, show the conversation of like, look, if we, if we do this, following the chemical residue removal process seems to work. We know it's limitations, but I'm trying to at least move the conversation forward of, hey, this is possible. Yeah, so do you ever have a client situation where you've done all the residue wiping and the house has tested as okay and the client has then still reached out and said you know i don't know what it is but something still doesn't feel right to me here like i'm still sick i i think there's something still here has that ever happened absolutely yeah absolutely uh, there's actually a client they're working with right now. Um, we've been working with her for about two years. And um, she recently did another Ernie test. And looking at the data, forget the score, looking at the data, she had maybe 40 spores of aspergillus when we first finished up. Now she has 4,000, which to me would indicate that there's definitely some growth somewhere, right? There shouldn't be that much of a change. So, because she did the prior test like a couple months back before that. So, you know, looking at that, now we're like, okay, maybe there's something that was potentially missed, you know, and, and um, we're asking the third party consultant that's been involved in the process to go back to the house to try to locate an issue that obviously there's, it's not visibly apparent and uh, to try to find this so that we know for sure that there's no longer any outstanding issues with the home. That's the kind of level of detail we kind of go into with our clients, you know, and, and we try to remain involved in the project, making sure that they ultimately feel better. That's, that's the goal. So the third party consultant then, so the job kind of just gets like handed off to another, another company to kind of try to deal with it and figure out what the problem is. So like the assessor. So there's, there's two roles really. There's the mold assessor and then the mold remediation company. In some states they can co-mingle. In uh, Florida and New York, you actually, they're supposed to be separate companies. 
we kind of like it that way. We feel like it's, it's kind of a conflict of interest for companies to do the same thing. And I've heard the argument back and forth, you know, the car mechanic, he diagnoses the problem with your car and then he fixes it. But just due to this, I feel like the more eyes on a particular project, the better, right? You have different perspectives involved. So for us with this person, they had a third party consultant that did the testing. Um, so we had that, we asked that person to go back out there to try to, you know, figure out where this growth of aspergillus could be inside the home. Cause that, you know, with MSQ PCR technology, if you're familiar, it's very limited. It tells you what's there. doesn't tell you where it is or how to deal with it. So we still need to understand where this growth could be coming from so we can eradicate it. Thank you. Thank you for answering all those questions. Eric and Alicia, do you have any, do you have any questions for Michael? Yeah, thank you again for joining us today, Michael. We're really, really happy that you're here because this is a major issue for pretty much everyone that is sick with mold that we deal with. So in your book, you describe a new method of of, uh, mold remediation. You talk about home detoxification. And I was really interested in that. Can you speak more on what that looks like? Yeah, so it's it's this process that I came up with that I've kind of married with the uh, chemical residue removal process. And it's essentially setting up air scrubbers, forget the gentleman's name, he calls a particular technique called air washing. And essentially you're trying to move around air, stir up a lot of the dust, which is gonna contain mold spores, suck it out of the house. And you do that by means of, you know, negative pressure and air scrubbers, but also HEPA vacuums. And then the final stage is really this, this thorough wipe down. And you're, you're literally wiping down every nook and cranny of this house. I mean, anywhere dust can collect. So that means walls too. So your walls, baseboards, moldings, things like that. And, and the, the idea is to remove as much, really specifically of the indoor water damage mold species of, that are inside the home that, that are created throughout the existence of having, you know, these, these different water leaks and things like that that have created these mold sources. It's kind of a jump start, right, to removing as much of this particulate as possible from the home so that when the client moves back into the house, it's it's really a fresh start. Um, that's kind of what we're looking for. And we understand that we're not building a bubble around the house. You're going to have mold spores come back into the environment, but we're, we're being mindful, right? We're rebuilding these spaces to make sure that the waterproofing membrane behind the bathroom is done properly so that they're not going to have leaks again in their bathroom um, of water getting seeping behind the ground and things like that. Uh, we're upgrading their HVAC system with like an IntelliPure whole house air pure purification system, getting these particles, these mold spores to get into the coil where the coil constantly condensates and essentially turns the HVAC system into uh, a source of its own. We want to stop that from happening so that as mold naturally comes into the environment, it's okay because it doesn't have the opportunity for it to grow. That's when we're noticing that, you know, people can live in their environment, whether they're immunocompromised or not, and not be impacted by mold the way we traditionally are just, just via the way we build homes and maintain homes and restore homes today. Awesome. Can you tell me how effective HEPA vacuums are for cleaning carpeting? And do you often recommend your clients to pull out their carpeting and replace it with something that is not so porous? You know, it's a great question. I will tell you that we've pulled off some miracles and I don't think it was really due to anything other than it just happened to be the luck of the draw with carpet cleaning. And that's because the client was apprehensive of removing it. We do the best we can in in situations that dictate themselves. Like for instance, 
if the client doesn't want to remove the carpet, well, we know that cleaning it's going to be a better option than not touching it at all. However, in that particular case, we got lucky and, and everything turned out fine. But I would say in, in most cases, the carpeting is many years old. It's a, it's a, you know, a welcome mat for more than just mold. We're talking toxins, allergens, other indoor pathogens as well. When we're looking to improve our health and wellness, especially by improving the conditions of our environment, I think carpeting is something that we want to have less of and have more cleanable services like hardwood, ceramic tile, even laminate, right? Because these are things that can be cleaned. We can remove the dust and control. We're not going to have reservoirs of dust and other things, you know, accumulating in the place. So I'm a big advocate for removing carpet, especially when you're dealing with ongoing mold issues. So you mentioned that you were successful in helping remediate someone's home that did have carpeting that, you know, they didn't want to remove it. What was it that you guys actually did to achieve that? We HEPA vacuumed it probably three times over. Um, you know, we're, we're really diligent in being thorough with it because we knew that, you know, this was a challenge we had to overcome. And then we actually put Benefect Decon 30 into a fog machine and we actually fogged it as well as a last ditch effort. I don't think that it really had any value, but you know, we wanted to pretty much throw everything in the kitchen sink at this thing. So that's what we did. And like I said, we got really lucky and, you know, everything, everything worked out in terms of the post-testing. Um, even the MSQ-PCR technology, just measuring, you know, what species load was there was all significantly improved. So like I said, we were shocked ourselves just based upon our own principles and everything that, you know, people in the air quality professional talk about, you know, removing carpets. So it, it was interesting. Well, thank you for your honesty and letting us know that what things that we know that a lot of the stuff is not a guarantee. So I really appreciate that first and foremost. And I know this is kind of um, backpedaling here with this question, but say that someone is sick in their home and they think it may be mold. Um, where can someone start assessing that their situation? What, what advice could you give to someone who is desperately searching for help. Yeah. And, and this is, um, this is a question that I get asked a lot. And, and obviously it, it, there's a lot of controversy around how you inspect homes in the first place. Um, I think the, the, the good way to start, there's, there's a MSQ PCR technology. A lot of people know it as ERMI, Emma, Hurts Me, et cetera. And then there's the EPA 36, which is basically the same, you know, uh, species, diagnostics without the scoring methodology itself. I like starting at that point because it's just giving you the load of what's going on in the house, right? And when you when you look at that and you look at the numbers, um, you can kind of get a sense of what what is what has happened with this house, right? For instance, let's say you're you're picking up pretty high levels of stachybotrys or catomium on that initial test. It's going to give you a good indication that, you know, there's some chronic water damage problems with this home. And this could be, you know, a costly endeavor to, to fix, right? So I think having that information up front and getting prepared for the battle ahead is, is pretty good, especially considering the fact that you're likely now going to move into an inspection phase where you're going to be working with professionals, helping to locate and diagnose where are these water intrusions are, are, are happening either in the past or ongoing. And how that relates to the air that you're breathing in that could be impacting your body and putting together a comprehensive plan of fixing those things. And, you know, none of us really have unlimited funds here, right? So always the biggest challenge is how do we make sense of this and do the right steps here without spinning our wheels 
without spending more than we need to, but really looking to improve our health and you know, our health and wellness. And I think that's where a lot of the challenges come from. And you can't really make those types of decisions without looking at the data itself. And so that's why I'm a big, a big fan of data. This is a data-driven business. You have to look at the data to make the decisions of what's the most impact here and how do we, we take the right steps here. Great. Thank you for that. And I wanted to ask you, um, just, just as a personal question and a personal situation that happened to me, because we are all mold-injured individuals here and we all dealt with scam remediators. You know, I had a 24-hour emergency mold remediator come into my home, basically look around and tell me the house looks great and it looks fine. We just had some dormant mold growth in the attic. Is dormant mold growth an issue uh, and does it still spew out mycotoxins in your experience? You know, this is, a, this is another very heated and debated topic. I think dormant mold is still an issue because it's still mold nonetheless. It's still there. Now, when, when you look at the sampling um, of, you know, old mold versus active mold growth, definitely you notice a difference in output. You know, like for instance, when you take an air sample close to like a dormant mold problem in an attic that would, you know, could have been through block ventilation through a, you know, a botch. A renovation job, fixing the insulation in the attic, something like that, you know, you, you definitely notice lower numbers in the air itself. Then when you go to a, you know, when you're testing near a problem, that's clearly active, right? There's still active water coming in. So there, there is something to be said there. And I think that's why a lot of the professionals say, uh, dormant mold's not a problem, right? But think about it like this. We, you already have growth that you have a colony there, whether it's not producing or, or is producing the second the environment allows for it to become, you know, active growth again, it's, it's there. I mean, why would you want to have that in your environment if health and wellness is the ultimate goal? I think that's, that's kind of really the, the way we need to look at things. Would you focus, if you had to prioritize funds on, am I remediating an active situation versus a dormant thing? I would say, yeah, of course, you're going to go with the active problem and leaving the dormant problem as a secondary issue. But I would say, look, we're, when, we're, when we're talking about this from a holistic perspective, we want to kind of prioritize what's affecting us right now and what has the capability of affecting us in the near future. And let's put a plan together to eradicate this thing in a way that makes sense, right? And I think that's kind of how I look at that. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, remember when Hurricane uh, Sandy was approaching, I made a prediction that someday people would start calling this Hurricane Stacky. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, in Staten Island, some areas were so badly flooded and damaged that entire areas became uninhabitable. It was like the outside air was a sick building. And you could do the perfect remediation. You could even knock down your house, build a new one. And if your neighbor's house was still contaminated, or if the plumes were blowing in and the area was still as bad as a sick building, it really didn't make any difference you were still in the same situation. So how often do you run into the problem where people are in a bad location, the outside air is intolerable, and you have to test that and counsel them on a possible evacuation? You know, it's actually a really good question. And I would say this happens a lot in the New York City area when people are in condos and buildings and they have zero control over the, the convection that occurs from unit to unit, right? So it's like you're almost living in a, uh, a Petri dish with everybody else's contaminants, you know, right there with you. And, you know, some people have to be in the city for work or for whatever, for other reasons. And so it's like, what do you do? Well, um, 
you remediate what you can control and, you know, tons of air purification systems to keep the air as clean as possible. But, you know, you have to understand that you're never going to have this perfect healing environment that you're looking for in this type of situation. And this happens too. Like we're, we've, uh, we've done remediation in Pennsylvania where they're, you know, near a horse farm or something. And you have, I mean, just an insane amounts of ketomium, which normally is not airborne and it's in the air. You know, and you're picking up 5,000 of it and you're like, well, this is going to be a problem, right? I mean, this has an impact to get into your house and has an impact to continue to, to enter the body. I mean, these are tough decisions that people have to make that no matter how good of remediation you do, this is something that's out of your control. And um, I think it's important to, to do an air test outside the house when you're about to buy a house to make sure that the environment surrounding the house is something that's going to be an environment that you can live in. Because let's face it, some of us, we don't detoxify quite the way that a lot of people do. And, and, you know, the air quality that we breathe needs to be a bigger importance of how we look at things than, than maybe the average person. I think that, um, yeah, it poses a great question. You, there's certain things out of your control. Yeah, Keely talked about some of the limitations of testing, particularly for stachybotrys. Dr. Strauss said that with his sophisticated uh, equipment, he was able to concentrate vast volumes of air and bring the levels of uh, cefatoxins up to the point where they could be detected. But this brought up a problem. A lot of times, there are the levels of detected stachybotrys are so low that they are reassuring that the area is safe and yet people are still sick. So how do you feel about the one spore stachybotrys theory, where if you detect it at all, it's a cause for alarm, and you need to be suspicious that perhaps testing methods are not adequate to address the situation and resolve your illness. Yeah, so stachybotrys in particular, it's a heavier, stickier mold, so you're never really going to find it in the air. I mean, if you do, it's going to be like a big problem, right? So when you get one spore in the air, I think it's an alarm for concern that there could be a lot more hiding somewhere else that you can't, that you're not picking up. Um, so, you know, you have to when you look at this and you have to understand that not all mold is created equal, you have to know a little bit about the different species present and you have to make, you know, really decisions based upon the situation. I, I look at stachybotrys and ketomium as, as those two things. I don't have a tolerance for it as a remediator. And typically remediators are like the people that are telling you it's fine. No, it's just one spore. I'm the exact opposite. I'm like, if, there, if it's present, we need to figure out what's going on. You know, and that that to me is a problem. And I think there needs to be a level of honesty in the industry to really help people. And I think that um, that that's something that I'm trying to bring to the table. So what at what point do you um, or how often should I say, do you run into a problem where even after a negative PCR test, people are still complaining and you have to move into the phase of counseling them on responding to their sensations, how they feel about their health and completely disregard what the testing is telling them. I have a, had a call with a client today and we're not done yet. There's some things that need to be done. You know, unfortunately in remediation, sometimes you open things up and you find some other issues that you didn't think of. This particular project, there's fascia board that has to be replaced and other things that are inf still influencing the interior of the home. And we, we had the conversation of, you know, we know it's not 100%, probably 99% there based upon the data. And I asked her, you know, how do you feel? Because you've obviously gone inside the house and the product's not done, but do you notice a difference? She goes, you know, Michael, the smell is gone. 
I can tell this is going to be good, but I'm having some PTSD, to be honest. I'm having some anxiety. Maybe it's because the house, you know, is still kind of in that, you know, deconstructed phase of remediation. And, I'm, and I'm, you know, I don't have full walls yet, but I just, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm concerned about the psychological impacts of just getting back into the home. So I, I, there is that component that can happen. It really depends on the person's viewpoint going into it, right? And if you strongly believe that this is going to solve the problem, I think it definitely provides you some comfort going back into the house after. If you at, at any reason suspect that the remediation is not going the way you want it to go, I think that there, it, it's going to create some challenges uh, in that regard. So I think the remediator has to do a really good job understanding how to remediate, especially for someone who may be going through that. And I think they have to really pay strong attention to detail and keep communication at an all-time high to really ensure that the client's best interest is at hand. And I think that's going to help with the, with, with the mental process of it because it's, it's a journey. I want everyone to know that th there's no like magic switch here where as soon as you walk into your house, you're healed, you know, after remediation is done successfully, there's a journey you go through in that healing process. And I think that um, if you don't go in, go into it with that mindset, you may get disappointed, you know, as if you're like, wait, where's my, you know, I, I'm walking into the house. I just should be instantly cured. Um, so I, I've, I've had those, those tough conversations and I think it, it's really helpful to kind of go into it with the right mindset. Okay, uh, obviously you're not a doctor and can't diagnose anybody, sure. but since you interface with people who are dealing with mold issues and the health effects of mold, I'm just curious how many of them ask you if mold is connected with chronic fatigue syndrome? I would say, I would say a lot. I mean, I think a, a lot of clients that I've observed have complained of chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic uh, brain fog. Um, cognitive difficulties, skin rashes, hives, eczema. These are the common complaints that I receive. You know, there's, there's also been some interesting correlation with people getting diagnosed with Lyme and then also kind of having the similar quoted effects of mold exposure. Uh, you know, I, we all know that the medical community, it's an ongoing study. There's hundreds of thousands of, of species of molds. We don't even know all of them. Um, we don't know all of the, the extent of how it impacts the body. And we know that individual immune systems play a, a role into this. So I think from where, for where we're at today and where we need to be, we're, we're, we're pretty far apart. But I, we've definitely made some strides over the past, you know, 20 or so years. Um, and, and I think that things are headed in the right direction. Do uh, doctors ever contact you to ask for your assistance? with dealing with the problems of a person that they've diagnosed with either mold illness or chronic fatigue syndrome? Yes, actually quite a bit. I think that, that um, I think there's, a, there's quite a bit of doctors actually across the country that will recommend to their clients to get in touch with us um, where, when they have an idea where they think the environment could be a play at hand. And not all the time it is, you know, it depends on, you know, obviously the uh, individual, sometimes people, I go from one property to the next and they happen to be in this doctor throughout the transition. And, and the, the problem is the last home. And, you know, when, when I look at this situation, basically I'm very careful in what I say. And we, we don't know if mold is causing the problem for these individuals or, or if it's exacerbating what's going on with these individuals. But what we do know it just the interesting correlation 
And maybe this is a big coincidence, right? But we have we see that when the environment improves, the client communicates to us that they they are noticing a big change in how they feel, and it's a positive one. So you know, like I said, there's a lot of study that needs to be done. Um, I'm sure I would hope that you guys agree on that. Um, but uh, I think that um, we've I've definitely noticed just more doctors becoming aware of the the health effects that indoor pathogens can create. Uh, we're we're definitely seeing an uptick in, in people, you know, looking at air quality. I mean, it makes sense to me, right? We take twenty thousand breaths per day. We're consuming more air than water, food, etc. We almost never look to improve our air quality. We always look at you know drinking more water, eating better food, exercising more. So I think I think it's about time we kind of tie in air quality to to health and wellness here. I totally agree on that. And my final question is, uh, a lot of mold experts and doctors are saying, well, you can't say you have mold illness because not all mold is bad. And you can't say mycotoxins make people sick because we don't know if mycotoxins, you can't prove it. So I was just curious with all the names and the terminology, the various diagnoses that people are dealing with, what do you call the health effects from mold? I call them, uh, I really just call them adverse health reactions. You know. Um, any any form so look at the word allergy right we always say like oh, i have allergies so what does allergy actually mean it means a foreign substance entering the body and causing an adverse health reaction so can you be allergic to mold of course and and like you said it's it's hard to say mold because there's so many different species and i i can tell you based upon just watching different people react to certain things and looking at data I have noticed one client in particular, for some reason, they react when they're around cladosporium. And this is based upon, yes, the anecdotal evidence of them complaining and looking at the areas in which they're complaining to and noticing that the common denominator there happened to be cladosporium. Again, could that be circumstantial? In a court of law, that would be circumstantial, right? But I don't believe in coincidences. I just think that we haven't really connected the dots well enough as an industry yet. And it's something that I'm desperately trying to do, whether I'm 100% right or not. Um, you know, I think it, it's important to, to, to engage like this and to really create this conversation around this because I think that it's important to take a look at this and see how it impacts. Personally, I, I do think that individuals can be impacted uh, due to exposure from mold. Like I said, whether it's mold toxicity or the amount of particles getting into the body is exacerbating whatever issues they may have currently going on. You know, I think that a lot more study needs to be needs to be developed around that. But I, I'm a big advocate for improving air quality to look at health and wellness. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. So how can a person seeking help um, remediating their home, how can you tell the difference between a scam company and a legitimate company that's actually there to help and resolve your issue? Wow, uh, this is a big, bold question. And I think it, basically, I think you really wanna work with someone who is going to spend time with you. I think that's really the best way. So for instance, like a mold inspection, when you're hiring a mold inspector to help perform the testing to get the data needed to figure out what's going on with the home, it should not be someone who comes in and takes an air sample in the middle of your house and in 15 minutes they're out the door, right? We talked a little bit earlier about how air samples can be inconclusive. You can have one spore of stachybotrys. Everyone says 
you're, you're, you're good to go when in reality you're probably not. So it should really be someone who's going to spend some time in your house, almost like when you buy a house and you get a home inspection, it's usually like a four hour process. I look at mold inspections and say that they really should be that way. They should be looking at the outside, looking for points of water intrusion from the exterior, working their way inside, looking for obvious signs of water intrusion, staining and things like that, or even, even active growth if they find mold, that, you know, suspect mold growth in an area where they can sample that. They really should be looking at every nook and cranny trying to help find out what's going on. And then when they get the report, they should be spending the time, again, going over that report and, and really putting together a scope of work with you so you understand what's going on, right? And, and it, can be very, it can be done in layman's terms so that you can really comprehend what's going on. Uh, if you read the book, The Mold Medic, you'll notice that I wrote it very simply so that anybody can read it and didn't try to overcomplicate things because really it's, it's a simple process. I think that when you're hiring a remediator, again, that can, be, that can be challenging of itself. Even if you've gotten a good inspection done and you got all the data there, you know, you need to ask questions about that data to really understand what their viewpoint is on it. Because if you send them a report and they're going to do what they want anyway and not follow that report, what, what good is that? You know, it, it's not really because the whole point is you're looking at the data and you're making conscious decisions based upon that data. If they're not on the same page with you, I don't think you're going to have a good outcome. So I think that you want to make sure that they've read the report, they're in agreement with the report, everybody's on the same page with the plan. And I would ask them, you know, just to kind of ask them about the, the, the engineering plan. What are we doing here to control the environment while remediation is happening so we're not cross-contaminating a situation? I'll tell you guys a horror story of a client I was involved with in uh, Atlanta, they had a remediation company. It honestly seemed to be doing all the right things, but she was like, I'm, I'm getting this weird sense of smell outside the containment. I'm not understanding what's going on. This company, what they had done, again, it all looked correct visually, but I, I had a hunch based upon what she was telling me. Inside the containment, they had an air scrubber that was set up under negative pressure. What that means essentially is that it's vented out the window, and what that's doing is anything that's getting released into the air is going towards this machine, which is sucking air out the window instead of throughout the rest of the house. This would have been great, but they had another air scrubber outside the containment on the same floor plugged in under neutral pressure. Neutral pressure means it's not vented outside. It's sucking air in the machine and putting it right back out into the same space. Okay. The problem was is that the one on neutral pressure outside the containment was set higher so it was drawing at 500 CFMs, whereas the one inside the containment under negative pressure was set lower. It was set about halfway. So for argument's sake, 250 CFMs. What does that mean? There was more pressure being brought outside the contained area than being negatively pressurized in that contained area. So what had happened was, as they're doing the work, the mold just traveled through the ceiling cavity into the outside the space where they were supposed to not have the mold go. So it's things like that where people, you know, make these kinds of mistakes, not really understanding what it is they're doing scientifically. They just, they're trained to just put plastic up, set these machines up and go. And I think that when you ask questions about the engineering plan, you're going to really understand if they know what they're doing or not based upon the answers they give you. And I think that's a really good way to kind of vet. And I think also you got to intuitively just feel good that the person has your best interest. 
Because guess what? We're human. People make mistakes. If a mistake is made, you want to make sure that they're going to correct it and do it the right way. Right. Thank you. I have a hunch that your business has been progressively doing really well over the years as I feel that, and we all see it, mold being an issue. Why do you think mold is becoming more of an issue as time goes on? Because we've never handled it the right way the first time ever. So, you know, you have these buildings that are older that, you know, we all grew up in this generation where, you know, mold, you have mold, throw bleach on it, paint over it. It's not a big deal, right? So you have how many X years of that happening where water damage situations were never repaired properly. You have the, the way we build homes now, we're building them tighter using the same materials that need that are meant to breathe, but we're building them tighter. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this passive house, but they're, they're starting to put them up, especially in California. They're like 18 inch thick walls. What is a house going to do the second you put it up? It's going to decay. From the second you erect the house, it starts to settle, it starts to decay. Water eventually will get in, it's a matter of time. This wall, this 18 inch wall is so thick, littered with spray foam. When you have a leak, and you will at some point in the future, it will be so expensive to repair that no one will do it right. That's, what I, that, that's my hypothesis with what's gonna happen because you'd have to, get to the you'd have to open up the wall remove all of the spray foam to get to the surface you're going to have you know drainage board plywood all these different layers to get to it's going to be so costly to get to that actual point where the water traveled to remediate properly to dry it out properly we're not thinking with that process in mind we're just like let's get net zero emissions okay at what cost it's going to be at the cost of our health down the road and so i think we've just in the building industry, there's not enough awareness. There's more awareness now with the consumer. We're you know, asking remediators more questions. We're not just taking the first company that our insurance company throws down our throat. We're definitely making the right strides with the consumer. Now it's time to create awareness that you know, we have to look at the way we build our homes too. And I think that you know, with the path we're heading down, you know, it's like some people are doing things the right way, but some people are not thinking about the environment, environmental impacts that are going to happen as these buildings start to decay. I know you've had a client say that they can feel where the mold is, like identify, mm. I forgot which mold you mentioned, but have you ever heard people say that they still feel it after remediation? You know, there was that one client that I said, you know, like I said, I think probably in the grand scheme of things, this client is extremely sensitive you know, never really in the, in the two years since we've kind of been working together, you know, she went from not being able to enter within 10 feet of her front door to in the house. So I would say great strides of progress have been made, but she's not feeling 100%. And um, I'm, a, I'm a person who believes people when they speak, you know, and when they're telling me, you know, their body feels a certain way, I tend to listen because, you know, I, I want to put myself in their shoes and understand what they're going through. And you know, to, to write people off, because a lot of people in my industry, they'll just call people crazy. They'll say, this person's difficult, they're crazy. You know, that's not who I am. I, I tend to listen. And so I said to her, why don't you, you know, do another ERMI? Let's just see the difference in, in the results. There should be a nominal difference, right? Because the, it's always changing. You're always going to have dust convecting across the house. But let's see if there's something alarming. And there was, right? And so I'm like, you know what? There's a potential where there was another source somewhere that we missed. I mean, we don't have x-ray vision. We're relying on testing data, right? This is possible. This is why I call it more of a journey 
because you're, you're kind of making steps towards progress. It's, it's not definitive. In, in this particular case, you know, I don't have the answer for you because we, actually I got the call like yesterday. So what I do know is we're going to have the inspector go back out there and help find this source. Um, and so we can, can eradicate it. Out of that, that we kind of covered, I haven't had any other clients in, in, you know, almost a decade now that have been like, I don't, I can't move back into the house. Something is wrong. I just haven't. Doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist. No. I mean, there, could there be somebody who, you know, is just maybe doesn't want to call back and, and, you know, have that conversation. I, I'm sure, I'm sure it's possible, but I, I like the odds. And I think it's, I think the reason we're having a lot of success is because the level and detail of which we go to. Most remediation companies are going to tell you that ERMI, you know, they'll, they'll quote the EPA's website of how ERMI should not be used in a post-inspection to verify that remediation has been done successfully, right? I agree with that sentiment if that's not the goal, right? If, if you are, you know, if your scope of work says to remediate a, a, a shower stall, right? There was a leak in a shower stall, you're remediating a shower stall. As no mention of cleaning the rest of the house, how could you do, you know, an ERMI downstairs and look at that, look at the data and say, well, this didn't pass. It's two different things, you know, and that's why my job is to try to educate the client and say, these are some of the things you may want to consider, right? If you've had the typical project that I'm involved in, they'll have anywhere from five to 10 active sources of water intrusion and mold growing. That's typically the level. It, it, I'm, I don't really get calls for these smaller projects. It's typically like, I have a big problem here. I need your help. So with that being said, you know, we're, we're like, hey, you have a lot of different sources that have been creating mold spores this entire time. It's probably a good idea to, you know, really do a deep dive cleaning. And so with that being said, we're noticing big changes for people and they're, they're feeling a lot better and they're leaving us rave reviews. And I think it's just because we go into that three-step process. We're removing the sources, fixing the opportunity that created, allowed mold to grow in the first place. And we're looking at the byproducts that mold has been creating this entire time while it's been in your environment. After all, the byproducts it really is what's getting into the body, right? You're not eating the drywall where the mold is growing. You're, you're actually inhaling what is being created by these sources. So I think when we, when I really looked at that and, and really created that as part of our process, I think it's, it's really been that missing ingredient where a lot of people, when they have, let's call them failed remediations or they remediate and they don't feel better or, or notice any difference. I think it's because there's usually one or more of those components missing as part and parcel of the project. I do want to say, Michael, thank you for being the kind of person that listens to the people that you work with, because all three of us here have had ugly conversations with other professionals in the industry of air quality or fogging. And we have tried to explain things like one spore can make us sick and we can feel our environment. So we know when we don't feel right somewhere. And I think this is part of what Eric was alluding to when he was discussing what was happening in New York is some of us are actually struggling with a locations effect where some locations, entire locations or locations were reacting to. And even if that doesn't fully make sense to you right now, 
it's nice to have began a relationship with a remediator that at least might be open to the conversation in the future because you're really the first one that has been. So I just want to thank you so much for joining us today and for your time today. It was nice oh, to well, meet you. First, yeah, I want to thank you guys for having me. And, and um, it, it's, it's, it's such an interesting conversation to have in, in general because you have so many different fundamentals and schools of thoughts across different professionals. And it, and it can be very difficult to navigate. Even myself coming on this show, I don't never fully know what the angle is um, when, when, when I'm a guest on somebody's show and, and what we're, what I'm uh, walking into or looking to accomplish in the conversation. I know for me, no matter who I'm talking to, my message is to create awareness, right? That mold, mold, is, mold needs to be more talked about in our ecosystem, all indoor pathogens. We need to make better choices um, in regards to how our air quality uh, plays a part in our health and wellness. And I think that's kind of my passion and what I'm here to do. And um, I'll, I'll be the first to say that not everybody agrees with my ideologies or, or, or how I, uh, you know, everything that I portray in that book. And I think, like I said earlier, in 10 to 20 years, I'm sure we'll move the needle even further and have better ways of doing things. But for right now, what I tend to preach, I've seen time and time again work. And so that's what I'm focused on, right? Is, is just doing what I know works and what is helping people. In terms of the environment, I'm absolutely very down to have that discussion, very open-minded. And I think part of how I got to where I am is by listening, listening to everyone else talk and try to connect those dots. And I think that's, that, that's where I, I've had success with. So if there's anything that I can be involved in with you guys on, on some of the research that you're doing and how the you know, environment outside of the home plays a role in this as well, I'm all ears, you know, and anything that I can do to help create awareness around, you know, helping people get better through breathing better air. I think for so many, it's not even on their radar until, like you said, it's too late until you're actually sick trying to figure out what's going on. So for me, uh, anything I can do would be, would be awesome. We would be happy to have a remediator with integrity as an ally. And yes. As a final question, I'd like to ask you, what would you say as a response to other remediators who say things to people like, you're not sick from mold. Mold only causes allergies in 10% of the population. Um, I would say that, you know, you're operating off of old information, you know, number one. And number two, you know, I don't, if, if this is not, if you're not, if your passion isn't to help people through transforming their air quality, then why are you in the business in the first place, right? At that point, you're just a guy who wants to get money from insurance companies to come in and work on projects. To me, that's not what mold remediation should be. My goal is to put scientific, you know, science and, and medicine back together with respects to re restoration, because for far too long, restoration has really been hired guns by the insurance company to just come in and do whatever they're willing to pay for. And I think that's really the biggest problem that we have to encounter because there's uh, maybe, there's 50,000 restoration companies out there. So just so you guys know that the statistic, 90% of them are gonna be in that realm. And, and that's, that's part of the problem. So when you have these people that are telling people, you know, mold is uh, not a problem. Well, then why do, you, why do you remove it? Why? Why bother? Thank you. Thank you for answering that. And thank you for your time today. 
Yeah, I'm sure that you're cleaning up after a lot of these scam remediators messes. So I really appreciate you being the good guy out on the streets and really helping people get well because you would not believe the patient population that we serve, the horror stories of scam remediators that come in and tell them that they can just fog down their house and they're going to be fine after. So we seethe with that information. What areas are you currently serving and how can people find you online? Yeah, good question. So um, we service nationwide and the best way to find me online is on Instagram where I'm very active um, at the mold medic, you know, kind of, kind of around the book. But um, you know, I, I post, I post a lot of tips on there of how to prevent mold in the first place. Cause I feel like, you know, that's something we need to kind of retrain ourselves to preventing these situations from happening in the first place. Um, I'm a writer for mind body green. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but I, I write an article for them every month, kind of helping create awareness and, uh, you know, like this is a passion for me. And um, if there's anybody out there who needs my help, just reach out. I'm happy to help. I, I, you said something about fogging. And um, I, I definitely wanted to just kind of create a statement around that because I think it's really important. I call those guys like the spray and pray people. Um, <laughs> you know, essentially, they're like, uh, you know, they, they want to just spray whatever magical solution. It's all like pure acetic acid or some special enzymes or whatnot. And, you know, it kills everything. Well, go on the EPA's website. And, and, you know, how I feel about the EPA is I think it's archaic, but even on the EPA's website, if you, they have this page called, should I use bleach to kill mold? And uh, they say no, which is great. But then they have this little paragraph that says, you know, you shouldn't kill mold because dead mold still may cause allergic reaction in some. Well, I pick that up as a, as a nod to, hey, killing mold isn't the solution, right? And they're really onto something there because we don't understand, again, dead mold, mold doesn't really matter. It's still a particle. Right. And we zoom out a bit and we go to the, the uh, you know, again, back to the EPA's website or American Lung Association. They say that size matters and particles entering the body that are small can have the greatest health risk because they're passing right through the respiratory tract and entering the bloodstream. Okay? So when we look at fogging as a solution, it doesn't solve really any of the three pillars that we talked about earlier, which is removing the colonization, fixing the source of water or moisture intrusion. I mean, unless they're fogging with something that is miraculous, I don't know about, um, that, you know, just plugs leaks up as it goes. It doesn't do that. And it's certainly, if it, what it, if it dissolves the outer protein layer of, of the mold spore itself, I would be impressed. But all it's doing is breaking it down into, into smaller hypo fragments, which again, it's even smaller of a particle, not sure how it impacts the body. So, until we do more research and understanding that fogging could be used as a final stage process exclusively, great. But right now, my, my theory is to remove mold, not, not to kill it, not to break it down into smaller particles. So that, that's, my, that's my statement on the spray and pray people. And, uh, you know, fogging can be part of the final cleanup process after you've actually solved the problem. I just want to make one thing clear of what you just said. So fogging can actually break down the mycotoxins, the particles, the fragments into smaller fragments. Yeah. So exactly wow. what they can do. It's not, yeah, it's not, the, it's not an ideal solution. Thank you everyone for joining us today. I am so happy that we have been connected with Michael Rubino. Um, he seems like one of the mold remediators out there with integrity. Um, and we are just really excited about this conversation today. And we hope that you find a lot of value in it. Please like, share, comment on our content. Go ahead and check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages to keep this going. 
Thank you again and have a wonderful day. We'll see you next time.